Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tas Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is Mike Kennard. He's a building materials expert at Hidden Steps Marketing. So Mike, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Hey, my pleasure. I really appreciate you reaching out and uh, having an opportunity to, you know, increase experience into this format and, and education is, is key. Learning is key. And, and so, right, you have to put in to get out as well. So I, I see this as a good opportunity both ways. Absolutely. I think I, I saw your, your engagement with, I think, one of our past guests, Beth. And I looked at your profile and I noticed you you have a bunch of experience in the building materials side, some on the, the paint or the coding side as well. Yep. And I thought it'd be fun. I mean, I spent a lot of time launching different products, not as many on the building materials side, but it was, you know, my thought was that, hey, look, there's a lot to navigate here. You've probably seen a lot and this would be fun. So that was my thought. Yeah, well, it's awesome. I uh, look forward to getting into it here. Yeah. So, I mean, initially you kind of started in like, you know, sort of at the store level at Sherwin-Williams. Did you kind of just fall into that or was there sort of a family background or something? So I had actually painted a lot. I mean, I painted uh, my uncle, aunt and uncles inside of their house when I was like, 15, I remember riding my bike over to it, you know, and I think that was, they kept on adding rooms and, and I think it was uh, 200 bucks maybe to, you know, basically paint half the inside of their house. And then my dad had a big old Rambler with uh, cedar siding on it. And we stained that to death. I did, might've gotten into a little bit of trouble as a, as the youngest child. And, and I think sometimes that was my penance was to, to paint a family member's house. So I had background in it, literally, you know, putting product on the wall. And then when I was a, a management major at the university, that was one of the internships that, that came up was a manager trainee program. So I'm like, Hey, you know, I've still got shorts full of paint, you know, on them. I should probably run to this at, you know, this interview. And that's, you know, a little bit by default, but a little bit of background experience. My felt, you know, was positioning me to, to get that. And, and it stuck for about seven years. Sure. I and mean, what did you learn through that experience? I mean, Sherwin is a big company. They, they have lots of processes. I mean, what did you learn through that experience? Yeah. I mean, I did internship and then I did, you know, into their manager trainee program. And, and I actually moved out to Las Vegas after graduating college. So I did the manager trainee program out of the Southwest division, which was nice to, you know, understand a, a big company, as you say, organizational divisions and districting and different things like that. And then have different management teams from where I did my internship in Minnesota, but then go out and see how things were different in the Southwest. And, and then I moved back laterally. So kind of all of that, you know, career progression, that early career progression, I got in about the first three years. And then from a manufacturing perspective, I learned more about the company and the efficiencies after I went to smaller companies. Like I learned about, you know, having vertical integration where you're controlling the entire supply chain, but then self-distributing versus say distributing to a two-step distributor or three-step or one-step. So I, I learned almost as much, I feel like when I left about Sherwin-Williams as, you know, I knew when I was there and, and that was also by design because they were such an established company. They knew what their model was and, and they stuck to it. So in sure. management, 
you know, I had my training programs and, and the curriculum and the Univ- Sherwin-Williams University. I mean, this was so long ago, we didn't do anything online. We did literally workbooks. And then when I went into outside sales, it was just very focused. I mean, I had a 20 square mile radius territory with 200 accounts in it that I could hardly keep up with. Today, I'm, I'm managing you know, vendors and, and products nationally. So from 20 square mile radius to, to national and actually even international, it's crazy, but they, you know, they had process, they had structure and they had success and they had a, you know, winning formula. So I also learned, you know, from a stylistic perspective and a, and a sales management process perspective on, you know, what they did and why it was, you just go out and sell, we'll take care of everything else, just yeah. blinders, like a, like a racehorse, you know, right. Just go out there and sell, make 10 calls a day, write them down, do your reports and, uh, you know, and start again next week. Yeah. They have a very established process. And it was kind of that you must have dealt with other uh, sales reps in the company. It was 200 kind of the thing they figured that, you know, you could keep up with, but you couldn't uh, back off and and uh, slack off. Or, or is that is there variable on sort of the geography and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, it was interesting. I mean, there was a, a veteran employee that, you know, handled one account maybe two accounts, but really one big union shop in, in Minneapolis. And, and, you know, in his territory was three times the size of mine, right? I had these little pot and brush painters and, you know, a couple of long shot opportunities, but, and I said, Hey, Dan, I said, what I wouldn't do to have one, you know, $3 million account. And, and he, he said, Mikey, let me tell you this. This is something that you should never wish for. They own me. They own me. They own me. Nights, weekends, seven days a week, holidays. You know, that was a good lesson too, right? That there's, you know, don't be weighted down with just all of your eggs in one basket, particularly if you don't have, you know, an $8 billion company behind you that can, you know, spread out some of the risk. So yeah, there's there's a million helping hands and words of wisdom, you know, that I've been so fortunate with. And, and I try to remember all of them and, and go back to them when I have decisions to make in my current day and, and the like. So. Sure. So you mentioned something earlier about small, small company, vertically integrated and self-distributing. And I thought, okay, some of those things line up. Okay. No two-step, right? No three-step or whatnot. But, you know, small company and vertically integrated don't necessarily go together. Walk me through that. Well, I, I guess I meant I meant they were vertically integrated when I went to a smaller company. So after Sherwin-Williams, which Sherwin-Williams introduced me to the building materials industry through a couple of my accounts. And I felt like, you know, at Sherwin, I was just uh, in, a, in a paint company, if you will, as, as good and successful as they are. I, I had this thirst in my mid-20s, right, to, to understand distribution and co-op programs and pull-throughs and different things like that between different businesses. And at the same time, entering that market, which I did with the Trex Decking Company in early 2000, I learned while working for Trex, a smaller company, how you know, vertically integrated and how successful Sherwin was in controlling all of the points of, of its success from manufacturing to, you know, to distribution, to private labeling, to direct sales force, to their stores group, to their commercial ends, all of those different things. So excuse me if I, if I put those too close together, but it, I, I just thought it was interesting that you go from an eight or $10 billion company to a hundred million dollar company and you learn more about 
you know, kind of some of the different structures that an organization can have in supply chain and, you know, low cost manufacturer, producer, and some of those different things. And, and that goes back to Sherwin putting the blinders on, you know, to stay focused, which was what I needed at 23 years old. Yeah. So when you went from a large company, I know, you know, it's like uh, I say, uh, you know, trying to learn marketing from Coca-Cola, right? right. Uh, people, you know, with, with like a 90% sort of recognition rate, it's it's a little bit different than introducing something new or with a smaller company. So tell me the transition when you went to a smaller company, you had your hands in many pots and probably not as many established processes. And I would say that the, you know, the next two stops in my career, you know, I left a multi-billion dollar company and went to about $150 million company, was there for three years at the Trex company, and then went to a $30 million company. So it was increasingly, you know, terrifying, if you will, but it was based on, you know, so instead of, I would say, you know, I went from having brand awareness at Sherwin-Williams and not even knowing that there was a, you know, not even knowing what the brand was doing for me on my everyday sales calls in my 20 square mile radius territory, you know, how that was opening a door for me that I didn't even realize it wasn't me. It was, it was the, the logo of Sherwin-Williams that opened that door for me and got me the appointment. And then when I went to a smaller company, it was actually an opportunity to help create the identity and the meaning of that brand which is a total different experience, right? Because it, like, like you say with the Coca-Cola example, here it's, you know, it was impressed upon us as a culture that everything that we do, how we handle ourselves, how we go to market, the value promise that we're making, all of that is, is helping to identify this emerging brand that is doing well in its own rights in its infancy, and that was at the Trex company, but we, we got to influence it, if you will. And so that was a different experience, taking that to market and, and kind of guiding us, if you will. Sure. So besides, obviously, when you go from a 150 to 30, obviously, you know, people know you more at the $150 million company, but what else was different when you went to a $30 million company? Well, I mean, there was like 11 of us in the room. <laughs> so, you know, going all the way back, Sherwin-Williams, we had a, a national sales meeting and they filled the Grand Ole Opry Hotel. And I think the, you know, adjacent hotels, right? So, I mean, that's just thousands and thousands. And then you go to hundreds and then you're going to, you know, a couple of handfuls of people into the room. But one of the things, and, and I remember going to lunch we were just coming back from lunch during my first week with the vice president of sales and marketing. And uh, I took a phone call from our marketing manager about exhibiting at the International Builder Show. And, you know, it, there was an idea popped up. It was going to cost X. And, you know, before he put his seatbelt on, he's like, do it and actually do it times two. So it was putting, again, this was 2004. So flat screen TVs, a you know, 70 inch flat screen was not a, you know, it was probably $10,000 or something, but we were bringing, you know, big video screens to, to show highlight reels of our projects. So the decision-making was quick, right? That was probably the biggest at that time I saw, you know, in that moment, literally first week of training. And I'm like, wow, these guys are making really fast decisions 
and that was different faster than what I saw at the Trex company who, you know, just had more, more people to go through and more insights to grab. It was probably a pivotal, you know, impressionable at least, right? Note on my memory, that's a big change. As you get into a smaller, smaller organization, you can be faster. Yeah, absolutely. And then from there, I think you transitioned into a distribution company. Is that correct? Yeah. And, you know, I spent 15 years in product development, territory management, you know, sales management, product development with, you know, two manufacturers that went to market in a two-step distribution model. And so, you know, that wholesale and, and uh, you know, there's a, there's a, reasonable amount of the construction industry that doesn't understand that, you know, the majority of, of value add building materials are going through a two-step process. And um, at Trex and at AZEC um, and TimberTech, we, we had that two-step model. I felt like I knew them really, really well after 15 years and, you know, had some amazing relationships, partnerships, successes, failures, recoveries, all of those things. But so it felt like a natural step to go to Wausau Supply Company and and understand that. And I'll tell you, when you're sitting on the opposite side of the table, right, the negotiating table, if you will, and the partnership table, there's a lot hiding in the distribution world that the manufacturer doesn't see. And, and you don't know what that really is until you own, you know, a hundred million dollar P&L that, you know, and, and have you and your sales team loading trucks at 10 o'clock at night, you know, because there's 1% unemployment uh, six years ago. And now it feels like we're back to that. You don't know until you know. And so that was a pivotal move for the business that I run today and started two years ago. The the first 20 years of experience was awesome on the manufacturer side, but I would say it's really the last five years that I was in distribution is what really was the glue to my story, or I should say my strategy on you know, how to help smaller brand companies find those distributors. And that's what I'm doing today under Hidden Step Marketing. Sure, sure. Two questions come to mind when you're doing that. So for people that don't fully understand, what is the rationale for going two-step versus one-step as a strategy? Yeah, as a strategy, the the big thing is getting material close to the market and and in bulk, right? So there's traction Azac and and there's people that overlapped both companies in time. So they'll you know get a smile at this because we've we've all said it seven thousand times. But it's built on three tenets: make a better product, tell people about it, and make it easy to buy. And the last component, if you have you know if you have two hundred SKUs. Right. We've got different lengths of deck boards or trim boards. We've got different colors. We've got accessories. We've got fasteners, right? All of these different pieces and parts. You're going to ship them all from one manufacturing location in the east or in the west or in the south. And you're going to ship those nationwide. Or if your main driver of, you know, the last sale, if you will, to the contractors through a lumber yard, is a lumber yard going to stock all 200 of those? So you have to have, uh, and then also, you know, if they're not going to, which they're not, then how do you have an efficiency of manufacturing? Because you can't just put down 300 extrusion lines and then turn them all in one day in April because the season's in front of you, you know, of decking coming on. So it's really about having, you know, supply, making the product easy to buy to the lumber yards, but also to have any level of manufacturing efficiency and at the point of optimization where you have some inventory, but you also have raw material. And then you have a hundred million dollars out in the market that's ready to sell. Well, now we can forecast, we can plan, we can 
you know, do all of that supply management to get raw material in, to have whip inventory, to have finished good inventory, and, and really build an efficient business model that can A, keep up with demand, but isn't so heavily saddled with, you know, with capacity, idle capacity that's sitting there because, you know, you filled this month's orders and, and now we have a bunch of machinery that's just sitting there. So it's, it's really about finding that equilibrium of supply and demand is why there's a reliance on two-step distribution. Sure. It's just basically putting the products closer to your distribution network, taking the load off the inventory at the individual houses, but being able to turn that product around quickly enough that they can be responsive to a customer need. 100%. That's exactly right. Okay. So the other thing that uh, you brought up was on the distribution side, in, if you're you're not managing the $100 million PL, what they could be hiding, what could distributors be hiding or not be telling you? Well, it's A, how their organization runs and, and how important inside sales and customer service is to a distribution versus outside sales. From a manufacturer's perspective, you know, I went into you know, management uh, with a new distributor. We fought through the purchasing negotiations. We talked about a startup strategy and how you know, we're going to achieve success in X amount of time frame, you know, opening orders, marketing collateral, brand positioning, partnership announcements. And then we train the outside salespeople that are going to be out making the, the calls in the field and set up travel time. Yet, you know, we didn't do anything about those who answer the phones. And I know, so when I was at AZEC, I launched actually with Wausau Supply, who I ended up going to work for. And I did a training seminar with their outside sales staff. And then I went and did training seminars with their inside sales staff. And I used the same presentation. And for the inside sales staff, it was the wrong presentation because the outside was just kind of the features, the benefits, you know, the top line, you're making the introduction, you know, maybe some tips and tricks on installation because that that are easily demonstrable, you know, hands-on. But inside staff, I mean, their phone is lit up. I mean, if you see calls, you know, call uh, centers, I mean, their phones are lit up nonstop. And it's, hey, how many screws are in that box? How many, how many washers go along with that railing kit? How many? I mean, it is the finite details. Um, you know, what does that top rail weigh? Uh, you know, what's the, what's the modulars of elasticity? What's the hook bow tolerance? What's the, I mean, all of the details. And, and the first time I went in and did a training session, it was like, I failed um, the inside sales group because they are as much, if not more of the horse horses in the engine that drive the experience that I didn't realize as a manufacturer. Yeah. So that was one of the, one of the big things there. And then uh, so another, and, and this is shaped, you know, the, the vendors that I'm partnered with today is, you know, what 3000 SKUs looks like and believing and living and understanding the 80, 20 rule significantly better. And what that does to the profitability of a wholesale distributor to see product on the shelf, consuming space with dust on it. And it's not because of the forklifts or they weren't running a clean shop. It's because it hasn't moved and damage to understand what the real cost of damage is, you know, managing returns and rejections and all of those things. It is so real, you know, that it's, it's driven me to where I'm at today, working with manufacturers that implicitly have a very small amount of SKUs where we're focused on the 80-20 of opportunity versus trying to you know, create something that 
you know, might appeal to even the furthest inquiry, if you will, because it's the most efficient for distribution. And, and we're starting from, have been starting from scratch, right? I've got a, a company that I work with from Italy that's not based in this market and, and doesn't have, you know, much of a presence. Um, so we have to be smart about what we're bringing in on the value proposition to win uh, that customer acquisition. Sure, absolutely. From here, I'd say, I mean, building materials is one of the areas, you know, and part of manufacturing where it, unless you're vertically integrated and you have your own contractor or, uh, or sorry, installation group, the product isn't finished when it comes out of the factory, right? right? Like there's this whole process where you have to somehow affect quality control out in the field, which is tied to your reputation. How have you seen that happen? How do you manage that? What, what are your thoughts around that? Well, I mean, historically, right, there's been a lot of processes, um, obviously working for, you know, the big companies that I have, but number one, it's responsiveness and, you know, these little things that you pick up uh, from different people that I always try to do when someone asks a question, particularly related to quality control, you know, the first thing I do is answer yes or no, or I don't know you know, and, and then I can go through to my experience or tolerances or, you know, the next step process. Um, but the first thing is answer the question, you know, is this a claim? Is this a warrantable claim? The like, so, you know, speed is, is talked about a lot in, you know, in culture, I think conversations, you know, I've had multiple speakers come into organizations and, you know, speed kills, speed wins, all of these things. And and I would say in customer service, quality control, um, those types of things, I think that's right. I don't know that that's the answer every time with every decision we have out there, but I think for customer service, yes. So the other thing is, is proper training up front. I've been doing some Instagram reels of, you know, showing contractors on an illuminated glass railing system that, that I represent and, and involved in. And I'm, we have 16 lights that come in a, a kit and, and I show on the wiring that, you know, here's, I've got a bunch of lights in my hand and I'm like, look, all of these are yellow. And I said, the reason that we're doing, you know, this, this test is because we're looking for something that looks like this. And then I hold up a blue one. Right. And, and it's one of these kids is not doing, you know, the same as the others. And we're trying to show in installation, education and training, not just the features and benefits and the basic installation, but in, in technology and social media is so awesome and drones because we can get vantage points of, of live applications, not just renderings of how to install something, but then also showing the consequence. And I did this back in PVC trim as I, I told a room of 75 contractors, I led with a picture of a product failing because of improper installation and it got their intention. I mean, you know, the boards weren't supposed to have a gap that was, you know, this wide between them. It was supposed to be a nice tight miter. And I led with, if you don't pay attention to the next slide and a half, don't call me if you get this situation on your job, you know, in the spring after a, a big swing in temperature change. So, you know, I think some of it we can, we can address, you know, quality control with installers, you know, showing them what happens if you don't do it. So I installed a four prong lighting system inaccurately, intentionally and said, listen, I'm pushing yellow 
and this one's turning blue, you know, this is going to be you if we don't do the installation according to um, the examples that we're giving here. Nice. I like the idea. So um, you mentioned about getting a new distributor that's not in the market or manufacturing in the market up and running, which is really interesting. How do you, well, you talked about the product focus, right? Because obviously you can't launch 3000 products at once. You got to focus on a very finite number of them. Geography wise, how do you think about that? Or how, how quickly can they expand it? What sort of things do you think about when you're trying to get someone off the ground? Yeah, it's, I mean, there's population densities. There's, you know, I've been in the industry for a while and, and, um, you know, I know what markets are moving in what direction, you know, I've been in the value added outdoor living products space uh, for basically my whole career. And so we, you know, there was an early principle that somebody said at Trex, which was, if you don't know where to point your car in the morning, go, go point it towards hills, greens, or water because there's going to be a deck built there and it's going to be a nice one. <laughs> right. And, and it's, it's real, you know, I mean, they're not wrong um, by saying that. So it, it's rewarding and comical that, you know, the things that stay with you for 17 or 18 years now, and that was told to me in a, in a decent sized group, you know, back time from uh, Andy Ferrari, you know, from the Trex company. And um, so, you know, that's a, that's a staple. And if you're selling, you know, synthetic decking material and like I work with Tiva building products who makes a PVC decking, you know, Oklahoma where everything's slab on grade, and there's a lot of concrete, a lot of brick, you know, that's not the number one market to go to. So, you know, there's, you know, I have two glass railings. One has a Miami-Dade certification, our Italian Elevetro. So, you know, they invested into the Miami-Dade certification. So we're hitting that Florida market and the whole East Coast pretty hard because we have a competitive advantage where we passed without adding a bunch of adhesive products to a cladding and that you don't need a top rail so you can get that maximum view and still have a Miami-Dade certification. Sure, absolutely. And then you you mentioned from that, right? Competitive advantage, certifications that give you a competitive advantage in terms of going into the market, reps, you know, company company employees, how do you think about launching something that's well, um, it's it's chicken and egg, right? Boy, if you hire a bunch of reps, they're gonna, you know, get more feet on the street and and the like. So, you know, some of it I I launched with a distributor with one of my products, Spartan Railing, in the Chicago market, and they had a preferred. They said, listen, we're we're interested in stocking and inventorying your product, you know, but we're concerned with with you know, there's not enough of you. Right. And I and we know that you're setting up distribution in California and looking at the East Coast and and the like. So we have a rep group that you know, is really an extension of us and works well in our system. So we're not saying you have to, but, you know, boy, we work really well with them and they think we would, you would represent your product equally well. And, and so that was an easy one. We just followed our customer and, you know, I've been saying for a long time, if, if we can just treat our customers like customers and listen to them, you know, we could be in a pretty good place. So, so that's an example of where we've done it there in other markets. Yeah, it's it's um it's me on a plane, it's my partner on a plane, and also looking at you know, independent rep groups to you know to support our business and, and sometimes get that that largest customer acquisition. But a lot of it is 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 really just driven from from the head office here, you know, finding finding the right partner that in the right geography and then just grinding and going after it, you know, continually. I, the one in Chicago said no to me twice, you know, but not the third time. What changed it? Pull through. 
So we got end user demand. We went into the market. We talked to contractors. We asked for the opportunity and then also asked them to come on a ride that we were creating. And, and we believe in strongly is that there's a category shift in the outdoor railing market. There's a category shift to glass. Glass has been around forever. It's the ultimate view and, you know, I think the, the staycations and right, all kinds of new buzz things that have happened that we've gone through in the last two years is, is put a, there's always been a strong focus on home, you know, as long as I've been in the industry, but I think it's even increasingly and, and maybe the first half of my career, the focus was on curb appeal. But I would say, and, and maybe I can coin something here, there's, there's something about a backyard appeal that's that's growing and that's the 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 luxury backyards and and the like so yeah and then also just going back to the distributor thing how how, how do you handle you know this possible dis- distributor exclusivities or other negotiations around price or rebates or whatnot how do, how do you sort of holistically especially if you have something unique how do you think about that yeah i think i mean for the products that i have you know i have two glass railings and and one of them is is not new to the glazing side of the market, but it's brand new to the lumber building material side of the market. So on the glazing side, there's there's not going to be any exclusivities because it's just it's it's a less structured side of the industry where a lot of different people sell to a lot of different people. Whereas on the lumber building material side, it's manufacturer sells to distributor, distributor sells to lumber yard or one step or box store, and then they sell to a homeowner or contractor. So it depends on the product. You know, we've chosen with Spartan Railing to have more of a neighborly approach versus a, you know, we must have dual distribution in every single market because we don't have all of the resources. We don't have all of the backing. And for the product line, we don't, we think we need the right partners and we're giving them an opportunity to reinvest into the business because we need their reinvestment, you know, but we also want it that way. So we want overlap that as much as we can, when you get into small up in the New England states, it's, it's, you know, some geographies are more difficult to have just one distributor, but it's a conscious choice. It's our strategy that we mapped out before we went and had a single conversation. Can we do this with one distributor in a market? What does that look like from a supply chain? What does that look from an order frequency? How much pressure does that put on us to hold inventory for them? You know, what are we prepared to do? And so at the end of the day, the, the, you know, we agreed in strategy that this is, we want to, we want neighbors. Uh, We don't want, you know, mortal enemies sitting in, you know, central California. But if there's somebody in Oregon that comes down into the, you know, overlaps a little bit into California and they can share some inventory if they have an outage, you know, or help a person out. That's what we want. We want the neighborly model for that one. So it depends on the product and what the offering is and and really the position of the manufacturer to, to pick out that strategy on what is going to best service them, you know, going forward and then, and then stay to it and execute. It sounds like you, there's a lot of transparency coming in when talking with people that this is, this is the way it's going to go. Yeah. It, it, it is all, all I've been through, you know, I've worked for companies that have gone through multiple rounds of private equity and, you know, going public and, and all of that, you know, we're as transparent as a publicly, you know, traded, but just based on who we are, you know, this is our experience We're we're not, we're self-capitalized and, and funded. And, you know, this is what we're building. This is our vision. This is our, our strategy to get there. This is the protection that we can offer you, if you will. And, you know, this is how we're doing it. 
So in building materials industry, I mean, economy to scale is a very um, you know, prominent factor. For a small organization, what sort of levers or strategies can a smaller organization take to, to kind of cut through and build volume themselves? I mean, it's, it's, uh, I can, you know, speak to, speak to my own pretty well, but it, again, that, that partner selection and then value creation it's, I've had conversations that have strung out for 14 months, you know, in, in different markets. And, you know, the first distributor that we got for Spartan railing, I'll use as an example is I think we got a, the courting started around May, you know, I got a signed distribution agreement, November 1st. And we didn't launch until March 1st. That's a pretty long sales cycle, right, to, to get going. So being able to float that is, is one thing. So, right, it took some investment to be able to float that. And we did whatever we had to, you know, to survive in the first year without a distributor. So we sold projects direct to contractors, which is outside of that nice, tight vertical supply chain. But we did it knowing that, we're going to sell at a discount to the distributor. The distributor is going to mark it up to the lumberyard around X percent. And the lumberyard is going to sell it to the contractor for Y percent. So when we sold a job direct, we did it thoughtfully. So, you know, we did a $40,000 job in California that now today that contractor is buying through a lumberyard and the pricing wasn't disrupted because we sold it high enough with the forethought that we're going to get distribution. So, you know, that job, you know, bought us a couple of months, you know, and then also some testimonials and then also some content. And then also to be able to, to get a, an ad in a trade publication that made the phone ring from, you know, building material distributors out of California, that's distributing our product out there. So all of those things, are, are steps in place. So that was a long process to get that distributor. We had buy signals. We had good partner signals along the way. I've had other similar length conversations, but there's no commitment. And you have to be careful about those, man. I need a distributor in this market that I'm you know, not directly speaking to, but speaking to. I need a distributor in that market. It's a big market opportunity for us, but they're not showing signs of commitment. They're asking questions. You know, they're still kind of poking at it from 10 feet away. I'm just waiting for the right partnership. And I think yeah. the right partner and then the strategy to go and make them successful, I don't care what the economy is doing. You know, from what I've experienced in 25 years, you just have to go out and create value to the right partner. Going back to expanding to distribution, and there's that layer of uh, technical support, whether it's technical sales support that comes with that. How do you think about that? Because as a small organization, as you're fanning out, you know, being close to the project becomes challenges during this transition. How do you think about keeping that in sync? Or, or do you offload that to your two distributors? Or do you own that? Yeah, so, I mean, we, I won't... I'll never say offload it to a two-step distributor. <laughs> and, and I know you're just using words there, right? We'll help them manage it. So, you know, again, finding the right partner. So my partner in California has, you know, had a product specialist that can dedicate an inordinate amount of time towards three products, ours being one of them. So that person covers a greater geography is heavier trained to the ins and outs and can handle that with guidance. You know, I can be on a job site in California today at one o'clock. How? FaceTime. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> or a team's meeting. So, you know, and what we're what we're selling, what we're manufacturing and putting out in the market isn't so complex that it can't be, you know, viewed and assessed, coached around to to help troubleshoot, find the solution, try a couple of different things and, and get after it that way. So it's a combination of, of remote with our existing customer base, but then quarterbacked, if you will, you know, from us and, and if it escalates and, and right, we, we can't see, you know, the, the root cause or something, and we need to head out and jump on a plane. We do, or we will. Perfect. Is there anything that I did not ask you that you wanted to cover? No, I think this was good. It's, it's, uh, you know, I, I like your questioning and I can see the thirst behind the question of, you know, understanding that's the, the supporting side of, of the manufacturer and, and how, you know, particularly in technical applications in my Sherwin Williams days. And I've, you know, somebody's painted the outside of a water tower and it's peeling, right. You, you can't do that from a, from a video call. You know, I think uh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm fortunate that, you know, the, the PVC decking and, and the, the glass rail systems, you know, we can troubleshoot from, from distance, but um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a factor for growth and, and something that we're going to have to grow into, but um, I appreciate the questions on it and, and the opportunity to share at least what we're doing. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing, uh, Mike. Awesome. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, wish you great success, continued success with everything that you're doing to, to share us entrepreneurs, you know, with what we're doing and, and hopefully we can help somebody else and, and then make another connection as well. Thank you for listening to the Specify Growth Podcast today. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Tats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.